All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories number 37 for April 2022. Boys Will Be Boys, Senator Penrose and His Brothers. cemetery is a National Historic Landmark, an arboretum, a sculpture garden, a nature preserve, and an active cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836 and remains a popular visiting spot for tens of thousands of people every year. Its sister cemetery, West Laurel Hill Cemetery, located across the Schuylkill River in Balakinwood, was founded in 1869 and has a history and a population of its own. I am Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University in Philadelphia, volunteer tour guide at Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery, and volunteer podcaster. Tucked away in Laurel Hill South, near the border with Fairmount Park, is a family plot that foot by foot may have more interesting people than any place else in the cemetery. The Penrose family goes back many generations, but I'm going to concentrate on four brothers born in the 1860s. Boyce Penrose was the second smartest man in his class at Harvard. He became a representative from Philadelphia to Harrisburg and Speaker of the House before moving to Washington as state senator, where he spent the rest of his life. His brother Charles Penrose was the only person with better grades in their Harvard class. Charles became a respected surgeon and gynecologist, and he brought the practice of surgery forward with his methods, along with leaving his name on a commonly used device. Richard, named after his father, became a geologist and surveyed some of the great precious metal reserves in the American West. His will left millions of dollars to organizations which are in existence today because of him. The baby of the group, Francis, had a mental breakdown in his teens and became a lifelong resident of an upper-class psychiatric hospital. But his legacy has been embellished on the web by someone claiming to be his niece. These four Pedros brothers are the topic of today's edition of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories. In the late 19th century, people who ran large personnel departments responsible for hiring young men and starting them on their business careers could usually tell what city a candidate came from without looking at the return address. If the applicant's letter of introduction read, Permit me to introduce Mr. Cabot Adams, who graduated with highest honors in the classics and political economy at Harvard and later took a degree at Berlin. He speaks and writes French and German, and if you employ him, I am sure his learning will make his services extremely valuable to you. The emphasis on education meant that candidate was unquestionably from Boston. If the letter read, 
The bearer, Mr. Astor Schultz, is the young fellow who took hold of Street & Company's Chicago branch a few years ago and built it up to 100000 a year. He also made it a hit as Jackson & Company's representative in London. He's a hustler, all right, and you'll make no mistake if you take him on. Business success such as this meant that the candidate was from New York. If, on the other hand, the letter read, Allow me the honor to introduce you to Mr. Lippincott Wister Wharton. His grandfather on his mother's side was a colonel in the Revolution, and on his father's side he is connected to the Pens and the Biddles. He's related by marriage to the lady who married Count Van Kloppenstein, and his family has always lived on Spruce Street near Rittenhouse Square. If you see fit to employ him, I feel certain that his very desirable social connections will render him of great value to you. That man was from Philadelphia, and the letter contained not a single detail about his qualifications for the job. Philadelphian Boys Penrose, that's spelled B-O-I-E-S, took his own superiority for granted. And why not? His father was wealthy Dr. Richard Penrose of the medical faculty of the University of Pennsylvania, co-founder of Children's Hospital, and a direct descendant of Bartholomew Penrose of Cornwall, whose son Thomas was a rich shipbuilder in colonial Philadelphia. Thomas's son married Sarah Biddle, daughter of one of the most powerful Philadelphia families at the time. James and Sarah's son Clement married Anna Howard Bingham, great-granddaughter of the Duke of Norfolk. Their son married yet another Biddle, Valeria, daughter of William Biddle, one of the proprietors of the province of New Jersey, a friend of William Penn, and founder of the Biddle family of Philadelphia. His mother, Sarah Hannah Boys, was of equally distinguished stock, reaching back to the house of Lord Baltimore, the founder of Maryland. Two of her ancestors were in the first graduating class of Harvard College in 1642. Boys Penrose was born five days before Abraham Lincoln was elected president. He was raised with his six brothers on the 1300 block of Spruce Street in the 8th Ward. At that time, the 8th Ward ran from Washington Square, 7th Street, to the Schuylkill, 25th Street, and from Chestnut to Spruce. He was the second Boys Penrose. An older brother by the same name had died shortly after birth the year before. The Penroses did not follow their neighbors west across Broad Street to the fashionable Rittenhouse Square district. His mother Sarah was regal and suppressed her emotions and sentiments. She instilled the same attitudes in her sons whom she doted over. Boys was 20 years old when Sarah died at age 46. He sent a simple message to her best friend. You may be interested to know that our mother was buried today. That was it, not another word. Boys never went to formal school until he reached his teens. His family just sort of assumed that he would know everything that he needed to know. After having a private tutor at home, he entered the Protestant Episcopal Academy in Philadelphia in preparation for his attendance at Harvard. His aloofness stayed with him throughout those years and for the rest of his life. Historian Henry Adams once said of Harvard, 
Any other education would have required a serious effort, but no one took Harvard seriously. We went there because our friends went there, and the college was our idea of social self-respect. Harvard was probably less hurtful than any other university in existence. It taught little, and that little not well, but it left the mind open, free from bias, ignorant of facts, but docile. By the time he started college, Boyce Penrose was a powerful six foot four inches with an aversion to physical contact and athletic endeavors. When he was recruited for football or wrestling, he made it plain that he had no desire to touch sweaty male bodies. This carried through in later political campaigns as he abhorred the idea of kissing babies and shaking hands. Once he observed a group of weightlifters struggling with a barbell, so he walked over to it in his street clothes and after carefully cleaning off the part that he would touch, easily lifted it over his head. Even though there was a 15-month age difference, boys and his younger brother Charles were roommates at Harvard, with maiden aunt Lydia Penrose sent by their mother to look after them. Charles was a no-nonsense student who spent every spare minute in books, and he advanced from honor to honor. Boys, on the other hand, had little interest in academics or in making friends. He didn't want to be popular, for that would require him to be pleasant to others, and that was not in his makeup. He wrote two plays while at college, a romance and a Greek tragedy. When classmates found out about this writing, they mocked him mercilessly, and he quit all artistic endeavors after threatening to kill the man who revealed his secret. He was hopelessly lazy and gave most of his time to reading for pleasure and to the recreation of wine, women, and song. He had no concern for any studies except politics at which he excelled. He was particularly interested in the concept of power, who had it, how did they get it, how did they retain it, and how did it pass along. After studying theory and idealism, he decided they had no place in the way politics was being practiced in 19th century America. He never learned the art of meeting and associating with people as equals. At mid-year exams of his senior year in 1881, the year after Theodore Roosevelt, whom he considered a nemesis, graduated from Harvard, and the year before Owen Wister graduated, Boys failed his tests miserably and would have been happy to walk away from the whole ordeal. But his father wrote to Cambridge and had words with Boys. He was allowed to retake his examinations and, surprise, he graduated second in his class. His brother Charles was first. More about Charles later in the podcast. Boys returned to Philadelphia, where it became apparent to him that the only way to get ahead was to be a lawyer, a Philadelphia lawyer. After studying in the law office of Wayne McVeigh, attorney general under Presidents Garfield and Arthur, and George Bisfam, Boys lasted just a short time, complaining, too damn dull. At least once a day, he required a he-man's dinner, and he would not go home to get it because his brother, the doctor, was constantly putting the family on diets. His favorite restaurants usually supplied him with two well-trained waiters to keep him supplied with a whole duck, plus all the side dishes and a quart of good liquor, which constituted the first course. Since he hated being stared at, they acquiesced to his wishes to be seated behind a screen as he ate.
Once on a bet, he polished off 36 oysters washed down by a bottle of whiskey. When his competition got queasy after the first 30, Penrose never slowed down. He ordered two dozen more. There was no money involved. He just wanted to make a point. And when he tired of eating, he went down the street a few blocks to the south end of the 8th Ward near Middle Alley. Middle Alley ran east-west for a single block between 6th and 7th Streets or Soap Fat Alley, which ran from 4th to 6th on Lombard. Both areas had been settled by African Americans, and they were known for their houses of gambling and prostitution. When he had finished his evening's entertainment, he went home and read voraciously before falling asleep and then sleeping until he woke. He never owned an alarm clock in his life. Despite his extracurricular activities, he was admitted to the bar in 1883 at the age of 23. His first income as a lawyer came not from a legal case, but from writing a dissertation for showman P.T. Barnum on white elephants covered their history, their habitats, their place in religions, etc. Barnum had acquired a so-called white elephant of questionable providence and sent a representative to Penrose more or less as a joke to find out who could write this tome for him. Boys took the job. Barnum paid him 25 bucks, distributed the authoritative sounding pamphlet across the country. Needless to say, Boyce Penrose knew no more about white elephants or elephants in general than the common man. He wrote a history of his own city, Philadelphia, 1681 to 1887. And while researching, he produced the original charter of the city given by William Penn. It had apparently been lost for more than a hundred years somewhere in the Biddle family archives. Boys Penrose came up with it. Republicans ruled the city of Philadelphia in the late 19th century, and almost all the city elections were fixed. The methods were not complicated. Quote, the fraud of an election does not really begin till night. Then in dozens of precincts where the judges and election clerks of both big parties have been fixed, we put down just what return we want. With a five-cent pencil, we can, in five minutes, cast more votes on paper than 5,000 citizens can cast in a ballot box in a whole day. Ballot box stuffing was certainly not unheard of. In one precinct, the stuffers were so enthusiastic that by the time the first voter actually arrived, he could not get his ballot into the box except by pounding it with both hands. When Penrose saw the power to be obtained when he controlled elections, he decided to quit the law and go into politics. He had been a lawyer for less than a year. Boyce Penrose in Philadelphia and Theodore Roosevelt in New York marked the entrance of the college man into politics. Boyce was asked by the reformers, at that time anyone who worked for change in the government was considered a reformer, they asked him to join their ranks and he pounced on the opportunity. Now Penrose was not a reformer, but he was a dissenter. He had no interest in reform, but the challenge intrigued him. The better elements don't know their way about in politics. They think people want to be good. Well, they don't. One day in the week is about all the goodness most people can stand. They want somebody who will go ahead and do things. As for ethics and morals, eh, leave all that to the preachers and nice people who haven't anything else to do.
Boyce Penrose announced he was going to conduct an honest election in the toughest polling place in the 8th Ward, and he followed through. The ballot boxes started empty. He had compiled his own list of eligible voters. No one else was allowed into the polling place that day. Despite attempts by local gangs to swarm in, Penrose kept them at bay, sometimes physically. Not a single illegal ballot was cast. The reform candidate, who normally would have been barely acknowledged as running for office, won the district by a three-to-one margin. The district's political boss, Buck Devlin, went to Penrose after the election and congratulated him. Knowing that if you can't beat him, join him, he asked boys to become part of his machine and ask what job he would like. I would like to be mayor, he answered. Devlin thought this might be possible. After all, he controlled all the votes in his ward. Usually he just put a vote in for the upper-class citizens as he did not expect them to show up to cast their own ballot in the working-class section. One day, an aristocrat from the precinct actually showed up. Well, 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 doctor, I didn't expect to see you. I hope you won't be surprised, but you voted about an hour ago. The gentleman said, oh, that was nice of you, Devlin. Tell me, did I vote right? You did indeed, sir, said Buck. Thank you, said the doctor. Don't mention it, said Buck. It was no trouble at all. As young men, boys and his brother Charles were very enthusiastic about big game hunting out west. They went on expeditions for grizzly bears whenever they had time together. In 1883, they headed to the Tetons. He had nothing but contempt for hunters of small game. He said that a man who would shoot a deer, a moose, or caribou would shoot a cow and call it sport. And fishing was, quote, a simpleton's game. When asked why he didn't try African big game hunting like his old Harvard nemesis Theodore Roosevelt, he said, That cockeyed little runt. Theodore couldn't convince anybody that he discovered Africa, but by God, he made them think he was the first to find out there were animals there. It was on one of these Teton trips that Charles was badly mauled by a mother grizzly. And when the Penrose brothers got back from the Tetons, Devlin was waiting in front of the house on Spruce Street with news. Go in and change your clothes. You've been nominated for the legislature. It was news to Penrose. He hadn't known that he had been considered or drafted. Tell them that I accept. I told them that, said Mr. Devlin. So Boyce Penrose was on his way to Harrisburg less than three years after arriving by train on a cold January day in 1885, he was elected state senator. In another four years, at age 31, he presided over the Pennsylvania Senate. Five years after that, he was elected to the United States Senate, where he remained for the last 24 years of his life. His methods and his personality never changed. He never married. When younger, women were attracted to his combination of virility and power, but he never had any sort of permanent relationship with a woman. He had started frequenting brothels while in his teens, and that continued to be his habit for life. In fact, when he thought about running for mayor in 1894, he was thwarted when his opposition produced a photograph of boys leaving a well-known house of ill repute. This may have been the greatest disappointment of his long career, but whenever a brothel opened in his ward, he was one of the first there to sample their wares and congratulate the owner on the new business venture. 
His distaste of touching or being touched never changed. Anyone who placed a hand on his arm or shoulder was immediately pushed away roughly. If someone bent in to share something secret in his ear, he withdrew instantly. His prodigious eating habits were legendary. A dozen eggs for breakfast with six rolls, a quart of coffee, and an inch-thick slab of ham. People often saw him consume an entire stuffed turkey for lunch. A Pennsylvania congressman who ate dinner with him once described how Penrose ordered reed birds, and the waiters brought him a chafing dish with 26 of them, which he devoured one by one, taking a ladle and finishing the wild rice and drinking the gravy out of a cup. This is all after having drunk nine cocktails and five highballs. His sloth was legendary. His girth grew to the point where he was almost immobile. His suits were made of the finest English cloth, but they were frequently stained with food. His boots were polished, but at times tied with simple string instead of shoelaces. One time he showed up for an appointment, one of his boots was tied with a pink corset string he had borrowed from a prostitute. He professed no religious beliefs, and he scoffed at politicians who invoked a deity in their campaigns. He never tried to make God his political running mate. Many clergy tried to prevent him from holding office, but they were unsuccessful. One preacher cornered him and tried to convince him that it should at least be his patriotic duty to be a little less bizarre in his sins of the flesh. Boys said, Doctor, morals are all right for men and women who haven't anything else. You and I have nothing to worry about until there are so many of that sort of people that they'll be able to deny you and me the right to have anything else. How's your parish work coming along? Good. Here's a hundred dollars. That, mind you, is not a bribe. Just leave me out of your prayers, won't you? He did offer a compromise. I'll tell you what I'll do. I promise to distribute my drinking more evenly among the saloons most popular with the pillars of various churches. I already drink regularly with three Catholic priests, four or five Episcopalian rectors, and God knows how many Baptist, Methodist, and Presbyterian elders. As drinkers, they have their weaknesses. The best drinkers I know are the Quakers. They are sober even when drunk. His explanation for much of his behavior may sound eerily familiar to people 140 years after he flourished. I do what I damn well please in public and in private, not what the mob wants me to do. But they vote for me just the same. Maybe it's because they're glad to see someone defy them. The masses like that. Penrose served in Harrisburg at a time when the graft and corruption was probably greater than any other time in Pennsylvania history. The Republican machine controlled every contract in the state, and especially in the city of Philadelphia. I do not have time to talk about all the shady deals made by Penrose or in his name, but he never took a penny for himself. His game was power. Robert Douglas Bowden wrote a superb biography of the man in 1937. He called Penrose in Harrisburg, quote, heroically and magnificently lazy. The difference between him and the other politicians was that the latter were greedy, stupid, and without morals, while the former was without greed, without morals, and without stupidity. He also knew where all the bodies were buried. 
and anyone threatening him with exposure would be met calmly with a reminder of his own faults and what their exposure would mean. There was probably never another American politician who had less regard for money for money's sake. He was independently wealthy. He had a servant who made sure that his pants pockets were stuffed with a wad of cash every morning. He never, ever took a penny for himself in graft or bribes. The power was in collecting and distributing the money, not in its keeping or personal spending. He spent 10 years in the Pennsylvania Senate. While Matthew Quay was the leader of the party in Pennsylvania, it was Boyce Penrose who pulled the strings as his puppet master. But Quay had gone and gotten himself elected to the United States Senate and left Penrose behind to keep things in order. The Republican Party of Pennsylvania ran the state like a well-oiled machine, and those who played by his rules were rewarded. While he may have been slovenly in appearance and manner, he was meticulous to the point of severity about the minutest legal requirements and technicalities of any and all measures of a public nature. In resolutions, legislative bills, contracts, platforms, not a comma must be out of place, nor must there be a hint of a legal loophole. He knew enough of law to realize that its technicalities are often used to defeat justice or to give aid or comfort to the enemy. His habit of accuracy and precision was his best wall of defense. Never was a single charge proven against him. He had always taken precautions to fill all the possible loopholes. At the end of 10 years in the state Senate, Boyce Penrose thought it was time to take his rightful place as mayor of Philadelphia. Although he was only 33 years old, he knew the city like no other man, from the gutters to the nearly completed city hall. His political enemies felt differently. They exposed the mess that was then Philadelphia, such as Middle Alley, one block in length, where there were 44 properties. 40 of them were brothels, and approximately 3,000 people visited them daily. There were similar entertainments available between 8th and 12th and between Arch and Spring Garden, the so-called Tenderloin District, in which there were an estimated 10,000 ladies of the evening. And there were several other sections of the city almost as notorious. With the money and the power of John Wanamaker against Penrose and his boss Quay, Local political boss, garbage collector, and boxer Dave Martin joined with reformer Rudolf Blankenberg, whose nickname was the Dutch Cleanser. A powerful anti-Penrose group arose. After they produced that life-size photo of Penrose leaving a well-known house of prostitution at daybreak, he was forced to withdraw from the competition. Another Republican, Charles Francis Warwick, a man inferior in every way to Penrose except for his morals, was nominated and elected for the four-year term. Warwick is interred at West Laurel Hill Cemetery. Blankenberg was later elected mayor in 1911. The Republican bosses under Matthew Coy regrouped and decided to go for broke, forcing Penrose into the United States Senate. At this time, senators were chosen by the state legislatures. His main competition for the Republican position was again John Wanamaker former postmaster general in the Benjamin Harrison administration, teacher of the world's largest Sunday school class, respected Republican stalwart, and the merchant prince of Philadelphia, 
as honest a man as one could be. It was a brutal battle to accumulate enough votes. Wanamaker was told, oh, you could win the election for $400,000 in cash. He winced and demurred. When told the same thing, Penrose said, wait here. He got on a train to New York City and returned within 48 hours with $250,000 in cash. When that's gone, let me know, he said. On 19 January 1897, the Pennsylvania State Legislature gave 210 votes, 83% of those cast, to Boys Penrose. Democratic candidate Chauncey Black from York got 39 votes, or 15.4%. John Wanamaker got one vote. On 4 March 1897, the day that William McKinley entered the White House, 6-foot, 4-inch, 250-pound, 35-year-old Boyce Penrose was on his way to Washington, D.C. as the junior senator from the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, where he would spend the rest of his life. He had lived up to his credo. Idealism in politics is pretty, but not very healthy. His senior senator was his political boss and political godfather, Matthew Quay. There were 45 states, 90 seats in the Senate, 43 Republicans, 33 Democrats, 5 Populists, 5 Silver, and 2 Silver Republican. Boise's professional father, Matthew Quay, suggested that now that he was a senator, he should settle down and get married. What you need is a wife. Penrose drawled, think so? All right, let the organization pick the woman. I'll marry her. The match never occurred. He never married. He never kept a mistress. When he wanted a woman, he rented one, a professional. He scorned amateurism in everything. Soon, he was involved in the machinations of Senate, especially the Finance Committee. The 1900 Republican National Convention was to be in Philadelphia at the Exposition Auditorium. Senator Platt of New York wished to rid his state of the meddlesome reform governor, Theodore Roosevelt, and he came to Penrose for advice. He wanted to force Mark Hanna to put Teddy on the ballot as McKinley's running mate to get rid of him. Penrose said, I went to college with Theodore. I know Theodore very well. If you can get enough people hollering for him to take the job, common people, mind you, not nice people. He'll insist on being vice president. Just tell Theodore they need him in Washington and then start the people out west writing to him, begging him to take it. The ploy worked and Roosevelt found himself running with McKinley in the 1900 elections. Matthew Quay died while in office in 1904. Shortly after his funeral, Penrose's Sancho Panza is Durham asked when the conference would be called. What conference, said Boys. To select Quay's successor, said Mr. Durham. Is, said Penrose, there isn't going to be any selection. There's going to be an auction. Penrose's 18 years in the Senate showed him at his political glory. Early on, he acquired the nickname Big Grizzly. He was a dominant member of the Senate Finance Committee and supported high protective tariffs. He had also served on the United States Senate Committee on Banking, United States Senate Committee on Naval Affairs, United States Senate Committee on Post Office and Post Roads, United States Senate Committee on Education and Labor, and United States Senate Committee on Immigration. 
One of Penrose's most important legislative actions was adding the oil depletion allowance to the Revenue Act of 1913. Penrose consistently supported pro-business policies and opposed labor reform and women's rights. In the 1912 presidential election, Penrose strongly supported incumbent President William Howard Taft over former President Theodore Roosevelt. After a campaign that consisted of heavy attacks on Penrose, Roosevelt won the state, although Democrat Woodrow Wilson won the national vote. Penrose detested Wilson and called him the schoolmarm. Wilson ignored Penrose. Democrats also won control of the Senate, and Penrose lost much of his power, as did other Republicans. Following the passage of the 17th Amendment, which allowed direct election of U.S. Senators in 1913, Penrose faced his first direct election in 1914, and he publicly campaigned for the first time in his life. He defeated Democrat A. Mitchell Palmer and progressive Gifford Pinchot, snagging 47% of the votes. In November 1915, Penrose accompanied the Liberty Bell on its nationwide tour, returning to Philadelphia from the Panama Pacific International Exposition in San Francisco. Penrose accompanied the Bell to New Orleans and then back to Philadelphia. The Liberty Bell has not been moved from Pennsylvania since. His descent took place over an eight-year period, rather like watching a large blimp with a minute pinhole leak. He gradually lost half his massive body weight. But until almost the very end, he remained the strongest politician in the country. He frequently could get more done in a five-minute phone conversation than Woodrow Wilson's cabinet could get done in a week. Boys Penrose collapsed in November 1919 while fighting Mr. Wilson's treaty to end the Great War. A special train carried him back to Philadelphia and an ambulance to the Spruce Street house where he had been born. Once established in bed, he demanded a drink. From his bed, he became a major supporter of Warren Harding. In fact, he handpicked Harding and introduced the idea of running for the presidency to him. He helped the Ohio senator win the 1920 Republican nomination. Penrose's role in Harding's election helped earn Pennsylvanian Andrew W. Mellon the role of Secretary of the Treasury. Boyce Penrose was obviously larger than life, and I've already spent probably more than a half hour talking about him. I could easily go on for another half hour or even longer. For instance, I told very little about his relationship with Is Duncan, or his battles and eventual wary friendship with the Vare brothers, or his skirmishes with Big Bill Flynn of Pittsburgh, or his vicious campaign against Gifford Pinchot. He battled against the League of Nations. He fought against voting rights for women. Boyce Penrose, the boss of the Republican Party, died just before midnight on New Year's Eve of 1921. Bells were already ringing to celebrate the new year. He was just a month more than 61 years old. On a January dawn, with no fanfare, eight hired men carried the naked bronze coffin out of the Penrose house on Spruce Street and shoved it into a motor hearse. Four cars carried the dead man's relations up Ridge Avenue to the family plot in a remote, almost hidden area in the south section of Laurel Hill Cemetery. 
six private detectives stood at the iron gates, and as soon as the five cars passed onto the property, they closed the gates. Two reporters showed up, and they were turned away. There were no flowers. There was no minister. The service was over in a few minutes. His legacies in the city are the rather dreary Penrose Bridge and Penrose Avenue in South Philadelphia. He left his estate to his three surviving brothers. They found 13 unworn suits, a dozen overcoats, four dozen new nightshirts, and in the cellar a stock of liquor appraised at a quarter of a million dollars. In 1934, the house was demolished for a parking lot. A junk dealer paid $4 for Penrose's massive bathtub. In 1927, the Republican majority of the Pennsylvania legislature passed a bill providing $20,000 for a statue of Penrose to be placed on the Capitol grounds in Harrisburg. It was a massive statue that showed Penrose holding a monocle. Boyce Penrose never wore a monocle in his life, and the sculptor, West Philadelphian Samuel Murray removed it. The few letters he left for posterity reveal nothing of the true Penrose. He once boasted, I never wrote a letter to a woman that you couldn't chill beer on. Instead of writing, he telephoned. His bills ran as much as $10,000 a year. And he made it a habit to call at 3 or 4 in the morning, quote, when they're pretty sure to be home, end quote. If you want to learn more, there are two excellent biographies written in 1931 and 1937, which feature interviews with people who knew the man well. Listen for them in the bibliography at the end of the podcast. Let's see, which legend of Charles Bingham Penrose would you like to hear first? The one about how he was mauled by a grizzly bear in the wilderness and he reset his own wrist-open fracture dislocation? How about the one where he was almost lynched during the Johnson County-Wyoming Range War? Or the one where he used a condom to invent a simple device that is still used in surgery today? Or the one about how since he was the only one of the Penrose brothers to settle into marriage and raise a family, He did so with a Drexel. These are all ripping good yarns, and they are all true. Charles Bingham Penrose followed boys into the world by about 18 months. Their father, Dr. R.A.F. Penrose, was Professor of Obstetrics at the University of Pennsylvania. Their grandfather, Charles Bingham Penrose, for whom Charles was named, was state senator from 1833 to 1841 and a solicitor for the U.S. Treasury Department. Their uncle, Judge Clement Biddle Penrose, presided over the Orphan's Court of Philadelphia County for more than 30 years. A cousin, General William Henry Penrose, who's buried at Arlington National Cemetery, had a long military career that took him out west. He would captivate the Penrose lads with his tales of fighting Indians on the Kansas and Colorado frontier. He told about how he had rubbed shoulders with legendary Westerners. Kit Carson, who actually died at the General's residence in Fort Lyon, Colorado. And William F. Buffalo Bill Cody, who was the General's guide during the winter of 1867-1868. Charles Bingham Penrose obviously was going to have a hard time deciding whether to become a doctor or a cowboy. 
Like boys, he started his formal schooling at the Episcopal Academy, followed by matriculation at Harvard while rooming with his older brother. He studied physics and, while a student, contributed articles to scientific journals on mathematical and physical subjects. He graduated magna cum laude with his A.B. in physics at age 19. As mentioned before, he was at the top of his class. Brother boys followed him by a fraction of a percentage point. Harvard offered him an assistant professorship at once in the belief that he might become one of the leading physicists of his generation. But Charles chose a different path. He entered medical school at the University of Pennsylvania. But he also arranged to continue his studies in math and physics as a graduate student at Harvard simultaneously with his medical degree. In the spring of 1884, at the age of 22, he was awarded an M.D. degree by the University of Pennsylvania and a Ph.D. in physics from Harvard University. His thesis was titled, The Mathematical Theory of Thermoelectricity and the Relation Between Thermoelectricity and Superficial Energy. Charles started as a resident at Pennsylvania Hospital in 1885 and 1886. While there, he participated in research with Jacob Mendez de Costa on the diuretic effects of injected cocaine. Da Costa is primarily known today for Da Costa's syndrome, also known as soldier's heart neurasthenia, an anxiety disorder combining effort fatigue, shortness of breath, a sighing, respiration, palpitations, and sweating that he first observed in soldiers in the American Civil War. He documented it in an 1871 study. Now, of course, we know it as post-traumatic stress disorder. Charles decided to concentrate on gynecologic diseases and procedures, like his father. After animal studies, he became convinced that cesarean section childbirth could become a safe and effective procedure. Around this time, C-section was a last-ditch effort to save the child, and the maternal mortality rate after a C-section was about 85%. The professor of surgery at the University of Pennsylvania characterized the operation by his gynecologic colleagues as, quote, legalized murder. Using newly emerging practices such as hand washing, anesthesia, careful tissue handling, and drainage tubes, Charles Penrose showed the safety of clean, deft abdominal surgery in delivering a baby by C-section, and maternal postpartum mortality started to plummet. Charles recognized the urgent need for a hospital just for women, and he decided to start one. In 1887, he founded, organized, incorporated, and financed the Gynecean Hospital for Women, obviously a redundancy, at 243 to 247 North 18th Street. It was very close to the Baldwin locomotive factory. He was able to recruit three astute clinicians, Dr. Joseph Price, Dr. David Hayes Agnew, and Dr. John Montgomery Baldy. All of them were experts in abdominal surgical procedures. During this time, he kept himself fit by various physical activities, including swimming. He was probably the most physically fit of all of the Penrose brothers. One time he swam from Philadelphia to Chester. That's a distance of about 13 miles. 
but he had developed a chronic cough, and he struggled to maintain his weight and his vitality. He self-diagnosed with tuberculosis. Now, while he was in medical school, Charles had made friends with Amos Walker Barber, who was born in Doylestown. Barber and Charles worked together at Pennsylvania Hospital until Amos moved to Wyoming in 1885 to become the surgeon in charge of the military hospital at Fort Fetterman. Barber took up private practice in 1889, and after Wyoming achieved statehood in July 1890, he was elected the first Secretary of State of Wyoming. When Wyoming Governor Francis E. Warren resigned to take up a United States Senate seat, Barber became acting governor. He was 30 years old. Charles hoped that air altitude, sunlight, and exercise might restore his health. So he headed to Cheyenne to do hard physical labor. His friend, Governor Dr. Barber, put him up at the exclusive Cheyenne Club, one of the fanciest places on the frontier. But privately, he did not give him much hope. He wrote quietly, Penrose is past all hope. I doubt if you'll ever see him again. Charles placed himself on a regiment of physical activity. He dug with a pick and shovel in the morning, and he rode horses in the afternoon. And by early the next year, he had gained 20 pounds, and he was well on the road to recovery. While he was at the Cheyenne Club, Charles agreed to serve as the surgeon on an invasion led by a group of cattlemen, the Wyoming Stock Growers Association. The men were responding to the perceived threats posed by settlers with smaller cattle operations. This conflict became known as the Johnson County War. Now, Charles was friends with fellow Harvard graduate and Philadelphian Owen Wister, sent him many letters about his adventures. When Wister wrote his best-known book, The Virginian, it was a fictionalized version of the Johnson County Wars. In fact, Charles may have inspired the most well-known line in the Virginian in an 1892 letter. He wrote that, quote, During the last two months, son of a bitch has been a favorite expression in this country. Wyoming is in the son of a bitch stage of her civilization and could not get on any more without it than she could without a lariat and a branding iron. Now, if you remember from way back in podcast number three, Easterners of the Old West, I talked with author Tom Keels about Owen Wister and the use of this phrase. As a reminder, during a card game, the villain Trampas says to the Virginian, Your bet, you son of a bitch. The Virginian quietly lays his gun on the table and says, When you call me that, smile. When two alleged cattle rustlers, Nate Champion and Nick Ray, were ambushed and killed by a group of the cattlemen, Charles was among the suspects arrested. He was taken to Douglas, Wyoming. A search showed he was carrying bichloride of mercury tablets. Now, at that time, it was a common treatment for syphilis. But his captors thought he was carrying the pills in order to poison the drinking water. It was decided that he would be lynched. But they would delay the act until the next morning so they could get a bigger crowd. Charles Selmate was a red-handed murderer and horse thief who offered him a half pair of scissors, trying to convince him that suicide by such a poor implement was far better than hanging. 
Governor Barber heard about the plan. He immediately sent a special train with a U.S. Marshal to rescue his old college friend. He had Charles brought back to the Cheyenne Club on a writ of habeas corpus, where he was ultimately cleared of responsibility in the attack. The lynch mob, which had been shooting into Charles' cell throughout the night, was deeply disappointed. From Cheyenne, Charles went to Silver City, New Mexico, where he seemed to have a complete and total recovery from his tuberculosis. A friend of mine who lived in Silver City read this draft and said, yeah, that was a common place for lungers to go back in the 19th century. When Charles returned to Philadelphia in 1893, he married into another old Philadelphia family when he took Miss Catherine Drexel as his wife. Catherine's father was financier, philanthropist Joseph William Drexel. Her mother was Lucy Horton Drexel. Her uncle was Anthony Joseph Drexel, banker, philanthropist, founder of Drexel University. Her siblings included Lucy Horton Drexel Dahlgren, who had married a son of Admiral John Dahlgren, and Elizabeth Drexel Dahlgren, who had married another son of Admiral Dahlgren. Talked about Admiral Dahlgren back in podcast number 10. And a third sibling was Josephine Horton Drexel Henry. Her first cousin, also named Catherine Drexel, was a Roman Catholic nun who was the first U.S. native to be named a saint of the Roman Catholic Church. That Catherine Drexel is interred in the Cathedral Basilica of Saints Peter and Paul on Logan Square. When his first son was born, Charles retained his inherited, unemotional, undemonstrative demeanor, just like his brother, just like his mother. When a nurse asked him, aren't you thrilled at the coming of little boy Blue? He answered, he is not a blue baby. I am not thrilled. But of course, the young of all vertebrates are interesting. Charles was hired as professor of gynecology for the medical school at the University of Pennsylvania. He was a much-beloved teacher who taught, quote, rational, clean, gentle surgery by word and hands in a way both convincing and proselytizing, end quote. He authored the textbook on diseases of women in 1897, which the Cincinnati Lancet Clinic described as a concise text that was well-suited for medical students and general practitioners. By 1908, six editions of the book had been published. It is available, no-cost PDF format, from archives.net. It has some beautiful, beautiful illustrations in it. It's a textbook on diseases of women by Charles Penrose. When he left his practice of surgery in 1899, Charles took an interest in zoo animals, and he founded the Penrose Research Laboratory at the Philadelphia Zoo in 1901. This was the first zoological laboratory located inside an American zoo. Along with Herbert Fox and Ellen Corson White, he established the study of zoo-based pathology in North America. The lab conducted important research into the prevention of tuberculosis and studied the impact of diet on animal fertility and on the richness of animal coats. While working at the Penrose Research Laboratory, Corson White developed zoo cake, 
which became a popular nutritional product for zoo animals. In the foreword to the 1923 tome, Disease in Captive Wild Mammals and Birds, which is dedicated to Charles Penrose, author Fox decried the fact that most animal diseases were poorly understood, especially relative to the progress that had been made in human medicine. He insisted on autopsies of all the animals to determine their cause of death and to change animal care based on the findings. His group was able to virtually eliminate tuberculosis in the monkey population. In 1911, Penrose was named a Fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. He belonged to several sections of the organization. He served as president of the Zoological Society of Philadelphia from 1909 until his death. A well-respected conservationist, he also spent many years as president of the Pennsylvania Fish and Game Commission. He was instrumental in the framing and passing of several bills to protect the wildlife of the state, particularly the conservation of small animal life. In 1903, Charles conceived and created the Pennsylvania Department of Health, and he gave its commissioner extraordinary powers. He personally visited every member of the legislature the night before the passage of his bill, and then he named the first commissioner of health, Dr. Samuel G. Dixon, who's buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section J, Lots 152-154. After years of rumors about his tangle with a grizzly bear, Charles Penrose set the record straight in the book Hunting and Conservation, the book of the Boone and Crockett Club in 1925. Here's the story. On September 1st, 1907, my brothers, boys, and Spencer and I had made camp on the mountains lying between the middle and south forks of the Flathead River in Montana, about five miles south of the line of the Great Northern Railroad. The country was very rough and difficult of access, and we saw no signs of man having been there, except the recent trail of a small party of the United States Geological Survey in charge of Mr. A. A. Stiles, who had gone there to map the country. Our camp was situated nearly on top of the range at this place about 7,000 feet above sea level. The highest neighboring peaks were 8,000 feet. The geological party was camped about a mile away. At four o'clock in the afternoon, I rode out with Mr. Stiles to see if we could get a deer. About two miles from camp, we tied up the horses and set out separately to hunt on foot. I walked along a rocky ridge covered with scattered burned timber, and went about a half a mile from where we were started, a small grizzly appeared, about 75 yards off, coming toward me. He was unaware of me. His head was down, nosing the ground. I shot at him, and he ran and rolled down the side of a ridge about 200 yards and fell dead beside a small creek. I fired two more shots at him as he ran. The country was open, nothing but masses of rocks and naked burnt trees. No other bear was visible. I went down to the small stream beside which the bear had fallen, put my gun against a tree, and was about to take out my pocket knife to skin him, when two grizzlies, one smaller than the other, appeared suddenly on the side of the ridge about thirty yards away. They had previously been concealed from my view by the irregularity of the rocky ground. 
The larger bear took in the situation instantly. The hair of her back became erect. She growled, crouched, and came for me at a lope. As soon as I saw her, I jumped for my gun and was able to fire two shots before she was on me. The last shot just as she grabbed me. She did not rear up or strike with her paws, but came at me like a dog and seized with her teeth the massive muscles in front of the left thigh. She threw me on my back in the creek, and the gun fell from my hand. She shook the leg as a terrier does a rat, then seized and crushed my left wrist. She took hold of the right breast and pulled and shook it. She stopped suddenly and stood over me, growling. For a few seconds, I lay still. Then I reached for the gun lying beside me, and she started again and tried to chew off the top of my head through the felt hat. She made several wounds to my skull. She then chewed the right side of my face and neck, one of her canine teeth going through the cheek and breaking off one of my teeth. I thought I was all in. I was impressed by the painlessness of the proceeding, and I recalled the experience of Livingstone, who wrote that he suffered no pain at all when he was attacked and chewed by a lion. Again she stopped. This time I made no movement. She stood there some seconds, then turned, crossed the little creek, and walked up the opposite bank about twenty yards, and fell, dying, against a tree stump. I saw the blood flowing from her left hip, and knew that one of the shots had mortally wounded her. I recovered my gun and got up and aimed at the third bear, who had meanwhile been standing where I first saw him, growling and whining with the hair on his back erect. The gun snapped, and on throwing open the chamber I found there was no cartridge in it. I felt for an extra cartridge in my pocket and found none. The two or three that had been there were gone, having dropped out in the scuffle. But the bear did not wait. He turned and with plaintive howls loped off down the ridge. I was unaware of the extent of my injuries and felt no pain or shock. I was soaked with water from the creek and was covered with my own blood and that of the bear. I sat down to examine the wounds, felt my pulse, which was good, and found that there was no serious bleeding. The only serious injury was that of the left wrist, which was crushed, and from which a fragment of bone projected. I washed my handkerchief in the stream, wrapped it about the wrist, and walked back to the horses. Here I met Mr. Stiles, and we returned to camp. I had in camp dressings, bichloride of mercury, and instruments, and I carefully dressed the wounds, took a quarter grain of morphia hypodermatically, and got into my sleeping bag. An interesting point in this experience is that the bear did not rear when attacking, nor did she strike with her paws. There was no paw wound. The wounds were all made by teeth. Perhaps the injury to her hind leg prevented her rearing. I had 30 tooth wounds. The muscle of the thigh were crushed and lacerated. The wrist joint was open, several of the small bones were crushed, and the scaphoid bone was bitten in two, one fragment projecting from the wound. The median nerve was severed at the wrist, the hand had been perforated by teeth in several places, the breast, head, cheek, and neck were bitten. And yet, when I got up to take a shot at the last bear, I felt no pain and was unaware of any injury. I sterilized and dressed the wounds most carefully, spending three hours at it. 
The result was that there was no infection and no sepsis. Most of the wounds healed without suppuration, and the final recovery was unaccompanied by physical impairment or disability of any account. End quote. I have a hard time believing that. <laughs> that if he had an open fracture dislocation of the scaphoid or the navicular bone and uh, a median nerve disruption that he had no disability whatsoever, very, very hard to believe. In 1909, Charles Penrose received an honorary LLD from his alma mater, the University of Pennsylvania. But the reason that his name is known to everyone in the medical profession is the Penrose drain. This soft, flexible rubber tube has become indispensable in all types of surgical procedures. When I was practicing emergency medicine, I would frequently use a half-inch Penrose drain as a temporary tourniquet to achieve a bloodless field while I was doing minor surgical procedure on a patient's finger or toe. In the late 19th century, surgeons were still deeply divided on whether drainage tubes should be used frequently or infrequently in abdominal surgery. This carried over into the early 20th century when much was made of Dr. Matthew Mann's failure to use a drain after operating on President William McKinley following his gunshot wound in Buffalo in 1901. Charles Penrose was an advocate of the maxim, when in doubt, drain. He made a presentation on this topic in front of the American Medical Association in 1889. Most surgical drains at that time were made of gauze or of glass tubes. They would adhere to surrounding tissues of the abdomen, meaning there was a risk of injury to the bowel or other tissues when the drain was removed. So in 1890, Charles Penrose designed a rubber drain, a simple tubular structure made of a condom with its tip cut off. In 1839, Charles Goodyear had discovered a way to process natural rubber, which is too stiff when cold and too soft when warm, but he did it in such a way as to make it elastic. Goodyear patented the rubber vulcanization process in 1844. The first rubber condom was produced in 1855. Until then, crude condoms had been made from sheep guts. Rubber, unlike the sheep gut condoms, could stretch and did not tear easily. The earliest rubber condoms had a seam. They were one or two millimeters thick, about as thick as a bicycle inner tube. As soon after Charles Penrose's publication of his data, rubber drains were made specifically for surgeons, and the Penrose drain became the dominant surgical drain until suction drainage was introduced in the 1950s. I think that was probably the Jackson Pratt. Charles tuberculosis recurred in the early 1920s, and he slowly deteriorated. He retained his skills as an outdoorsman as long as he was able. A good horseman, a good fisherman, a good sailor. He was skilled in farming, gardening, and cooking, all done with the same exactitude and patience that he displayed as a surgeon. Charles had made it a habit to spend the winter in Aiken, South Carolina. On 17 December 1924, he made his usual trek south. In late February of 1925, he was on his way to see two of his younger brothers, Dr. R.A.F. Penrose, president of the Academy of Natural Sciences, and Spencer Penrose of Colorado Springs, Colorado. 
As the train approached Washington, D.C. on its northern journey, Charles Penrose died of an apparent heart attack on the morning of 27 February 1925. Catherine had preceded him in death by seven years, and a daughter survived him. At his request, there was minimal fuss, just like his older brother. Small, family-only funeral, quiet burial in the family plot, South Laurel Hill Cemetery. But his name will live forever in medicine, as long as a surgeon asks for a Penrose drain. Spring is here, and the hours have expanded. Both cemeteries are now open until 7 p.m. Both live and virtual tours are available for the curious. The laurelhillcemetery.org slash events. The free members-only mausoleum tour is booked solid. Sorry, if you want a chance to look inside the mausoleums at West Laurel Hill Cemetery... Become a member of Friends of Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery and watch for the next opportunity. Okay, what tours are coming up? we got some good ones. Well, we only got good ones, but <laughs> for April, there's a favorite coming up. There are a couple of Hotspots general tours. Uh, this is uh, for the person who's never been there before. On Saturday the 9th from 1 to 3 p.m. and on Thursday the 23rd from 10 a.m. to noon. They are good introductory tours to what Laurel Hill Cemetery is all about. A theme tour. We have two of them. One is unsinkable to unthinkable. Titanic victims at Laurel Hill Cemetery. That is Saturday the 9th from 10 a.m. to 11.30 a.m. We have six people who are on the Titanic represented at Laurel Hill Cemetery. Three who survived, three who did not. Come and hear about their story and other Titanic connections. There are other Titanic connections um, uh, other than people who are on the boat. The other theme tour is going to be a really terrific one. It's called Liberty or Death, Revolutionary War Patriots. It's on Saturday, the 16th, from 10 a.m. till noon. Uh, Russ Dodge will be the host for that. Russ is one of our military experts, and he always gives a great tour. And then, if uh, you're not into the military but you like flowers, we have a Spring Blooms Arboretum Tour on Sunday, the 24th from 1 p.m. until 3 p.m. with our certified arborist, Aaron Greenberg. West Laurel Hill Cemetery, there's also an Arboretum walking tour. It's called Spring Blooms on Sunday the 10th from 1 p.m. until 3 p.m. A Sacred Spaces and Storied Places tour on Saturday the 23rd from 1 p.m. until 2.30. Again, that is more or less an introductory tour to West Laurel Hill Cemetery. The Boneyard Bookworms Group moves outdoors Thursday the 28th from 6 p.m. until 8 p.m. under the state champion Weeping Beech Tree. It's no fee for the bookworms, but please register so we will know how many people will show up. And then there is one virtual hotspots tour. If you can't make it to the cemetery, you can go to Zoom for a hotspots webinar tour on Wednesday the 13th from 6.30 p.m. until 8 p.m. And don't forget the on-demand virtual online tours at Laurel Hill Cemetery. Download the app that will take you from either the gatehouse or the pedestrian entrance off Kelly Drive. Also, by hitting the events icon, 
It's shaped like a calendar. You can see all the upcoming programs for the next month or two. Something new, a virtual tour of West Laurel Hill Cemetery from the Barmouth entrance off the Kinwood Trail to the Pincoit entrance off Wrights Ferry Road. As I write this, I'm still not sure where its final home will be. For now, if you want to take this audio tour, just email me, joe at joelex.net, and I will send you the link. If you are a member of the Friends of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries, there is a members-only podcast I've already done this year. It concerns a murder victim buried at West Laurel Hill Cemetery, a Baron von Munchausen imitator who is buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery, and a neurosurgeon opera company founder who is buried in France. He was killed during the Great War, but he has a cenotaph at Laurel Hill Cemetery. This is one of two members-only podcasts that I have planned for this year. As a member, you also get special live tours, discounts on all the tours, a discount at the online gift shop, and at the actual gift shop at the gatehouse at Laurel Hill Cemetery. Okay, let's get back to the podcast. If you are a Civil War buff, you might know the significance of 16 December 1863. On that date, less than six months after selecting and holding the ground for the Union Army at Gettysburg, Major General John Buford died of typhoid at age 37. He had received his promotion to that rank only hours before from President Abraham Lincoln. The following day, in the Penrose house on Spruce Street, Philadelphia, Sarah Boys Penrose gave birth to a fourth son, who was named after his father, the eminent physician Richard Alexander Fullerton Penrose. In his memoir, R.A.F. Jr. wrote, I will not dwell on my childhood, for it was doubtless the same as that of millions of other boys. Richard underwent home training, as well as attending a school run by the Mrs. Hoff across the street from his Spruce Street residence. Like his older brothers, Boys and Charles, he attended the Episcopal Academy at Juniper and Locust Streets before heading off to Harvard at 17, where the three brothers' paths merged for one year. Richard was more physically active than his brothers at this time. He took up rowing. He even led the Harvard team to a win over Yale. But he tragically lost an eye in a rowing accident while still at school. Junior was apparently his parents' favorite. While in college, Richard sent drafts of all his term papers home for parental review and correction before he submitted them. Neither in his unpublished memoirs nor in any of the accounts prepared by him for general publication does Dick Penrose give a clue as to why he turned to geology for his life's work. In a letter to his father dated 1 November 1882, he says, I like mineralogy better than any of my other courses and have already got enough minerals to cover five shelves of a bookcase. Undoubtedly, he had come to know and admire Nathaniel Southgate Shaler, one of the best-known and best-loved geologists of his time, whose work as a teacher was attracting many young men to Harvard for graduate study. 
Shaler had studied under Louis Agassiz and started his career as a creationist and anti-Darwinist. He was also a believer in polygenism, promoted by Agassiz, and Philadelphia proponent of scientific racism, Samuel George Morton, about whom you can hear more in Podcast 28, Bad Science. Richard started traveling during his college years with trips to Europe and to various parts of Ottawa, Canada, where he took an interest in the phosphate deposits. Richard graduated summa cum laude and a member of Phi Beta Kappa with his A.B. in 1884. And then he stayed for two more years. He became the first person to obtain a Ph.D. in geology from Harvard University. His thesis on the nature and origin of deposits of phosphate of lime was printed in 1888 by the U.S. Geological Survey as a USGS bulletin. In 1888, he was appointed geologist in charge of the eastern section of Texas, which kept him busy for the next two years. His work primarily concerned the main features of tertiary rocks in the Rio Grande region. During his two years in Texas, he received numerous invitations from the state geologist of Arkansas to come to that state and take charge of the work on manganese and iron ores. After weighing pros and cons, he finally made the move, where he spent another two years. In order to study the gold, silver, and copper potential in the mines of the Southwest, he made yet another trip in 1892 through New Mexico and Arizona. In 1890, the University of Chicago was founded on land donated by merchant Marshall Field with a donation from Standard Oil founder John D. Rockefeller. When classes started on the Hyde Park campus on 1 October 1892, R.A.F. Penrose, Jr. had been appointed assistant professor of economic geology. The next year, he was made an associate professor, and by 1895, he was appointed as a full professor. He remained a member of the staff until 1911. Despite the academic appointment, he continued his fieldwork. In 1894, he accepted an offer to work with Dr. Whitman Cross for the USGS, preparing a detailed report on the newly formed Cripple Creek, Colorado Gold District. Their report, Part 2 of the Geology and Mining Industries of the Cripple Creek District of Colorado, was very popular with the mine owners of the district, who had great confidence in its contents. Penrose stated in the report that he felt the gold mineralization in some veins would go to very great depths, contrary to opinions expressed by many others. His prediction was substantiated in later years as the mines increased in depth. Since 1891, more than 23 million ounces of gold have been produced, making Cripple Creek the third largest gold mining district in the United States. He did not invest in these mines at this time, thinking it was improper to do so while he was still working with the U.S. government. His brother, Spencer, however, did invest. The first part of RAF's professional career ended in 1896. The next five years were filled with mine examinations in many places. His letters of introduction invariably got him private tours of mines wherever he visited. With his partner, Daniel Berenger, Richard surveyed the Commonwealth Mine in Pierce, Arizona. 
thinking of the potential good investment, they purchased it for $250,000. In the first 18 months of working this mine, they showed a net profit of about a million dollars. And when Richard sold his share in 1898, the mine had produced about $7 million over a six-year period. Richard also had other profitable investments in iron ores in Grant County, New Mexico, and the Utah Copper Company in Bingham, Utah. His brother, Spencer Penrose, who is not buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery, was also making a fortune through the copper mines, which developed an ore capacity of 30,000 tons per day. Richard was also a director of Kennecott Copper Company, the Nevada Consolidated Copper Company, and the Braden Copper Company of Chile. With his newly earned millions, Richard Penrose started traveling. Over the next 12 years, it is estimated he traveled to 60 countries, always with the intent, quote, to study ore deposits, end quote. In the spring of 1901, he embarked on an extensive trip from England through Europe and Russia to Vladivostok, and then to China, through the Malay Peninsula, on to India in the Suez Canal, then to France. He visited South America in 1907. In 1908, it was the West Indies, Venezuela, and Puerto Rico. In 1912, he became particularly interested in investigating Burma and the possibilities of setting up mining operations there. He did explore much of the country, but his investment dreams never materialized. At the beginning of his travels, he wrote of his findings, although he only produced 10 papers during this period, and the longest was 32 pages long. The careful recording of geologic and other observations and of travels in his notebooks and diaries ceased abruptly in 1908. Richard was 45 years old, but he had not burned out professionally. In fact, quite the reverse was true. He had consciously or not ended the scientific learning stage of his life and had entered one of consolidation and of cashing in on his knowledge. In 1911, he was appointed a trustee of the University of Pennsylvania, a position he held until 1927. During the Great War, he was actively connected with the National Research Council, published a 28-page booklet called What a Geologist Can Do in War, which you can find on Amazon. Richard also started studying radium and uranium. He prepared a report which was published in a series known as Political and Commercial Control of the Mineral Resources of the World. Richard Penrose was elected a member of the American Philosophical Society in 1905 and served many years on the publication committee and always took the deepest interest in all geological papers that were submitted to him. He was president of the Society of Economic Geologists in 1920 and 1921 and president of the Geological Society of America from 1929 to 1930. Richard Penrose served as president of the Academy of Natural Sciences of Philadelphia from 1922 to 1926. And in 1927, he was appointed a member of the Board of Commissioners of Fairmount Park. He was also a trustee and vice president of the Free Library of Philadelphia. He took ill in 1923, and like his brothers, he underwent a slow decline over the last years of his life. 
His last publication was read before the Geological Society of America as its retiring president in December 1930. It was entitled, Geology as an Agent of Human Welfare. R.A.F. Penrose, Jr. died on 31 July 1931. He was 67 years old. He was buried in the family plot at Laurel Hill Cemetery. Tributes poured in from all over the world. Voldemort Lindgren, one of the founders of economic geology, wrote in Proceedings of the American Philosophical Society, In the first lines of this memorial, I have used the term gentleman. Like its feminine equivalent, it is a tired word, buffeted and worn by promiscuous, stupid, ridiculous usage. And yet, we are not ready to discard it. Brush away its abuses, and you will recognize it as one of the noblest words in the language, and there is nothing to take its place. Penrose was a gentleman. The word fits him as the glove fits the hand. Now, despite a congenial personality and numerous opportunities, Richard Penrose never married. One of his friends noted ironically, he seemed to be a very lonely man, but apparently was totally unaware of it. His will shocked almost everyone. Most people thought he might have accumulated a million dollars or so. He left behind $10 million. Three million of it was in cash at banks in Philadelphia, which were, of course, run by the Drexels, and large deposits in New York, Denver, and London banks. He left about $4 million each to the Geological Society of America and the American Philosophical Society. His endowment to the GSA turned them from a mostly volunteer organization barely scraping by to one with a comfortable endowment. The money supported several programs as well as the RAF Penrose Medal for Outstanding Geological Contributions. Similarly, the Society of Economic Geologists' most prestigious award is the Penrose Gold Medal, which is awarded every three years for outstanding geological achievements. His bust stands in a recess outside the conference room at GSA headquarters. In 2006, Penrose was inducted into the United States National Mining Hall of Fame in Leadville, Colorado, five years after the selection of his brother Spencer. His money to the American Philosophical Society was wisely invested and has more than quadrupled. Lindgren finished his monograph by saying, I would like to see his tomb marked by a monument of granite on which there would be deeply engraved the immortal verse beginning integer vitae scelerisque purus that is from the poet Horace translates as upright of life and free from vice instead like his brothers he has a plain brownstone marker with just his name and the dates of his birth and death Well, this podcast is about the Penrose brothers, so I have just a bit more to say. I will mention Spencer Penrose, even though he is buried far from Philadelphia. He ended up in Colorado Springs. He's interred there at the Will Rogers Shrine of the Sun Chapel Crypt. 
Spencer made a ton of money in the Cripple Creek gold mines and the Utah copper mines surveyed by his brother Richard. He built the famed Broadmoor Hotel. He paid to build the highway that runs up Pikes Peak. His philanthropy included the Cheyenne Mountain Zoo, Colorado Springs Fine Arts Center, Will Rogers Shrine of the Sun, and the Glockner Penrose Hospital, now known as Penrose St. Francis Health Services. The El Pomar Foundation, established in 1937 with an initial gift of $21 million, has awarded grants that have yielded more than $1.2 billion in results for the state of Colorado. Spencer Penrose was inducted into the Hall of Great Westerners of the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum in 2001. Like his older brothers, his story is legendary, but he is not interred at Laurel Hill Cemetery. So that brings us to the troubling problem of the youngest Penrose brother, Francis Boys Friday Penrose. There are only a few things I can verify about Francis that he was born in Philadelphia in 1867, and that he died at Burnbray Hospital in Upper Darby in 1947 of chronic myocarditis and chronic interstitial nephritis. One line on the death certificate just leapt out at me. Length of stay in hospital or institution, 61 years, 9 months. In other words, it looks like Francis Boys Penrose spent all of his adult life in a psychiatric institution, starting from when he was about 18 years old and a student at a Harvard University. Now, a little research on Burnbray Hospital. It, it was called the Burnbray Hospital for the Insane. Private 40-bed hospital for, quote, mental and nervous diseases. It was operated in Clifton Heights, Pennsylvania. Founded by Irish immigrant Dr. Robert A. Given, 1816-1868. He's buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery in Section 15. He opened it in the spring of 1860. It was eight and a half miles from the city limits, located near the Oak Lane Station of the Philadelphia, Wilmington, and Baltimore Railroads. From the 1884 Philadelphia Medical Registry, this institution, although not within the city limits, is so near them as to be properly mentioned in connection with the objects of this work. It is a private hospital for mental disease and derives its support from the payments made for board and medical care of patients. No patient is received for less period than three months. A certificate of insanity signed by two physicians and acknowledged before a magistrate is invariably required. A lady, well-educated and of unexceptionable manners and deportment, resides in the same apartments and devotes her time to lady patients, thus securing them on all occasions a pleasant companion and a watchful friend. A limited number of cases of opium habit can be admitted. Now, for people with psychiatric illness without money, the alternative was Blockley Almshouse which held as many as 5,000 people. And that was about all that I had until I was doing another sweep of the web. I came across this blog dated Tuesday, June 9th, 2009. It's called Looking to the Sun and Stars. 
The blogger gives her name as Deanna B. Penrose. The Deanna is D apostrophe I-A-N-A. She states she is the daughter of Philip Thomas Penrose, a.k.a. Spencer Penrose. Except that Philip Thomas Penrose, 1863 to 1901, and Spencer Penrose, 1865 to 1939, are two distinct people, and neither of them produced offspring. Even if Philip had produced a child in the last year of his life, remember he died in 1901, this blogger would have been 108 years old at the time of blogging in 2009. Now this is from the section of her blog called The Philadelphia Penroses. She writes, By the time Philip was age-ready for college, a few things would happen. My grandmother would pass away, and Harvard would have bullies at the school. Uncle Richard would be the first victim. He never said what happened, except that it was an accident. But he was hit with a rowing oar. Uncle Richard was the champion of the rowing team, and one day he was practicing, and the oar damaged his eye. The damage was so bad, his eye had to be removed, and he had a fake eye the rest of his life. The other thing that happened was Uncle Francis was beaten and raped. His head hit the cement, and he was never able to finish school. My grandfather brought him home, then, much to my father's and uncle's dismay, put him in a mental hospital for a short time. This act by my grandfather made his sons very mad at him, and he lost all of their respect. With these two incidents, my grandfather refused to send Philip to Harvard. Instead, he went to the University of Pennsylvania and a mining school in Colorado Springs, Colorado. My grandmother never got to see her sons graduate. She passed away in 1881. It was said she passed away from pneumonia, but that's not true. Philip had not wanted to go to school that day, so he pretended he was sick. He was having problems with bullies also, including the teacher, so he stayed home. As my grandmother was coming down the steps, she tripped and fell, breaking her neck. Now, in those days, if you had an accident in the home, that was terrible. People had a lot of strange ideas about that. So it was told that she died from pneumonia. Even with that, rumors ran that my grandfather had killed her. That was not true. She was the light of his life. He, in turn, blamed his son, Philip. It's a terrible thing what grief does. Philip always felt if he had gone to school that day, his life probably would have gone in a totally different direction. As it was with Sarah's death, it left a hole in all of her family's lives, one that would never be filled or healed. That is what the blogger says. I could not find Sarah Penrose's death certificate online, so I cannot verify or deny her cause of death. I go with what's in her son's biography. Uh, that she died of pneumonia. Then in another section of the blog, there's an even stranger post. It's called The Francis Boys Penrose Story. I would like to introduce you to my Uncle Francis. He was born in Philadelphia, PA in the year 1867, the fifth son of my grandparents. My uncle had a beautiful talent. He loved to draw. When my grandparents would go on trips without the kids, their nanny would have them write letters to my grandparents. Francis's letters and envelope would have drawings on them. His nickname was Friday. 
My uncle attended Harvard. Two things happened to him there. The first was a fellow student with the nickname Piggy fell in love with him and constantly sent him letters. My grandfather's advice was to burn every letter and discourage Piggy. My grandfather had plans for his boy boys to become president of the United States, and a scandal like this could hurt him. Uncle Francis did as his father said. The second thing that happened was Francis became very sick. They called it brain fever. This is what we call meningitis today, and a blow to the head could also cause brain fever. He had to leave Harvard in his second year and went back home to Philly. He was 18. My grandfather, who was a doctor, had a cure for everything. A change in climate and hard work were his remedies. So when my Uncle Francis was strong enough, he was sent to England. My grandmother, who had died in 1881, had family there. Okay, that's the blog so far. Now here's where things go haywire. By 1912, my uncle was 45 years old. He had married and had children. The last one was a newborn. My uncle got a job on a ship. Its name was Titanic. There were many people on this ship who knew my family well. The only person who did not take this trip was Rockefeller. He was booked to take it, but didn't. The richest men in America had a meeting on the fateful night of the Titanic. Even the head of the U.S. Treasury was there. They were going to take their money out of America because the government was going to start taxing individuals. A bomb went off in that room, killing every person there. My uncle knew of the meeting and went to check on everyone. He saw water and dead bodies. Everyone knows the rest of what happened, except what Washington was doing. The bomb was to go off at a certain time. The president had arranged a meeting with my Uncle Boys, who was head of naval affairs during this time. Uncle Boys got the message the Titanic is in trouble, and the president is not going to do anything. Uncle Boys leaves Washington. The president is pissed, and he gets his yacht, the Betty. He is able to save my Uncle Francis and a few others. Fast forward to Washington. My Uncle Francis and the other surviving employees are taken away where they are questioned. My uncle is tortured. He keeps telling them what he knows, and he keeps saying all he wants to do is go home to his family. I do not know how long they kept him. He had to sign a paper to never talk about what he knew. At one time, they were going to blame my uncle for planting the bomb, and then they changed their minds. Note, a messenger was sent to Mrs. Astor to make sure that she never mentioned the meeting. They released my Uncle Francis, who was tired, in shock, and was mentally plus physically drained. He went home to England, and when he arrived, he discovered his whole family had been murdered, even the baby. My uncle had a complete nervous breakdown. My family brought him home to Philly, where they put him in a mental hospital. There were parts of the Penrose family that would tell people my uncle was adopted and he was born in New Mexico. That is not true. They did this because people thought it was bad when a member of a family had to be put in a mental hospital. My father brought my uncle to Colorado Springs in the late 1930s. My uncle's nurse, who had been on the Titanic and rescued also, took care of him until he died in 1947. Mary Marvin stayed on with my family, and my mother appointed her to help Fairbanks and Berkey with the book about my Uncle Richard. This book never mentions the Titanic or the letters my Uncle Richard wrote concerning this incident. My dad had wanted them in the book. My mother did not. 
My father made my Uncle Francis' life as pleasant as he could, and if you look at the picture of him, you can see a gentleness about him. So that's the story about my uncle from my father and what happened on the Titanic. Okay, uh, (laughs) catch your breath. There are few events in world history that have been studied more closely than the sinking of the RMS Titanic. Nowhere among all of the conspiracy theories can I find a story even remotely similar to this one about the richest men in the world being in a room that was bombed. Just to make a few other points, she talks about the head of the Treasury being there. Uh, At that time, it was Franklin McVeigh of Illinois. He served from 1909 to 1913. The implications that President Taft knew the Titanic was going down is absurd. Taft lost one of his best friends and advisors, Archibald Butt, when it sank. The idea of boys sailing his yacht Betty from Washington, D.C. is preposterous. The Titanic sank 370 miles from land. The distance from D.C. to Halifax is almost 1,100 miles. The top speed of a large boat at that time was 20, maybe 25 miles per hour. So it would have taken boys a minimum of 48 hours simply to reach the site and then find his brother. The Titanic Wikipedia, called Encyclopedia Titanica, has no mention of a crew member named Penrose, although there was a Mr. John Poole Penrose of Liverpool who was listed as a passenger lost at sea. In addition, this blogger claims that her uncle Boys Penrose was murdered by the Vare brothers. She witnessed her father and a policeman being murdered by another man. She was given massive amounts of drugs to make her memory go away. That her father had an estate of $9 billion, which was split up between the CIA, FBI, the Tut family, military, and the mob, and that she and her sister did not get a penny. She said that when she was 11 years old, she barely escaped being assassinated by two killers dressed as a priest and a nun, and how they took a large sickle to my insides. She also talks about visiting Dick Cheney in Wyoming, who told her it is not good to be loyal to the Penroses. These are whopping whopping good tales. There's hardly a breath of truth in any of them. This is an absolutely amazing write-up by somebody who, for some reason, has inserted herself into the Penrose family lore. Her fictions have actually made it to Find a Grave, and Find a Grave says that that Frances Penrose was on the Titanic. Uh, Someone has also messed up the genealogy trees at Ancestry.com. And I don't know if it was her, but it's it's hard to follow the Penrose family on uh, Ancestry.com. Anyway, when Francis Boys Penrose died at Burnbray, his death announcement did not even make the local newspaper. He was buried quietly with his brothers and other family members at Laurel Hill Cemetery. In mid-April, the next episode of Biographical Bites from Bala will feature the brother and sister physician team of Francis and Clara Durkham. 
He was a highly recognized neurologist who was summoned almost immediately after Woodrow Wilson's stroke. She worked tirelessly for the rights of women in medicine. The May edition of All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories will be down the rabbit hole, almost literally, as I talk about people with connections to Lewis Carroll and Alice in Wonderland. A.B. Frost was a prominent Philadelphia artist and lithographer whom Charles Dodgson hired to illustrate one of his nonsense books. Eldridge Reeves Johnson, founder of the Radio Corporation of America, loved Alice enough to purchase the original document, handwritten by Carroll, with drawings by John Tenniel. One of the most photographed grave markers at West Laurel Hill Cemetery belongs to restaurateur Charles Sulis. One of his restaurant specialties was mock turtle soup, a Philadelphia delicacy. And society man Joseph Widener was a horse breeder of the highest caliber. One of his best-known horses was named Mad Hatter. All of these people next month on All Bones Considered. Cemetery is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia. It's an easy walk from the bus stop at Ridge and Allegheny for SEPTA buses R1 and 61. Admission is free, as is parking in the teeny tiny lot across the street. <laughs> there are a few spaces to park on the property. We do not we do not suggest parking on Ridge Avenue. West Laurel Hill Cemetery is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Balakinwood. There's parking available at the main entrance and at the bell tower. Your best bet for public transportation is to take the SEPTA Regional Rail to Maniunk or one of the many buses to the Wissahickon Transfer Center on Ridge Avenue. Then you cross the Schuylkill River on the Pencoid Pedestrian Bridge and come up Riders Ferry Road to the entrance near the Pet Cemetery. Both Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery are open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. from April to October. We welcome dog walkers, bike riders, photographers, painters, bird watchers, nature buffs, tree and plant lovers, and strollers, both the two-footed and the four-wheeled variety. Both Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery are open for historic tours. We expect you to follow current CDC guidelines, which are rapidly falling away. But if there is a guideline for masks, we would like you to follow it. We still have pay-what-you-wish virtual tours via Zoom. Find out more at thelaurelhillcemetery.org or westlaurelhill.com. Here's more to satisfy your curiosity, laurelhillcemetery.blog, where you can read about even more interesting people. And if you follow us on Instagram, you'll get a daily reminder of our inhabitants and activities. And if that's not enough, check out the virtual tours I have done on YouTube, Laurel Hill Cemetery, Hotspots and Storied Plots, Virtual Tour 1 and 2, both will give you an overview. All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories video podcast number one is on illustrator A.B. Frost and his family. And podcast number 22 on ornithologists and entomologists is also available as a video podcast on YouTube.
Now, once you've fallen in love with these hot spots, become a friend of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill cemeteries, and you will have the opportunity for several members-only special tours conducted each year, including some inside-the-mausoleum visits, although this next one is fully booked, so you're going to have to wait for that. And you get at least two members-only podcasts of All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories. They may be cemeteries, but they are a couple of the liveliest spots in town. I am Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University, reminding you to keep body and soul together until next time on All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories, where the plot thickens. You can contact me at joe at joelex.net. Stick around if you want to hear the references that I use for this podcast. And until the next time we meet, stay safe, stay well. Lots and lots of books and articles for this podcast for boys. There are two full biographies. One is called Power and Glory, The Life of Boys Penrose. That's by Walter Davenport, G.P. Putnam's Sons, New York, 1931. And then there is Boys Penrose by Robert Douglas Bowden. That's from Greenberg Publisher, New York, 1937. There is a book which is available in PDF format online. It's Philadelphia Patricians and Philistines, 1900 to 1950, by John Lukacs. It is published by Farrar Strauss Giraud, New York, 1980. Chapter 2 is on Boys Penrose, or The Conservative as Gargantua. That's pages 49 to 84. But there are many other stories in this book you would find fascinating. There is a chapter on Owen Wister. There is a chapter on William Christian Bullitt, who was the first husband to Amy Ernesta Drinker Bullitt Beau Barlow and other folks who made Philadelphia what it is today. It's a terrific book. I recommend it. Now, as far as Charles... From the Master Surgeons of America, Charles B. Penrose. That's by Edward Martin, M.D., F.A.C.S., Philadelphia, pages 1 through 5. Sorry, I don't have a publication date on that. Obituary Notices, Charles Bingham Penrose by Ernest Harold Baines, Journal of Mammology, volume 6, number 3, August 1925, pages 203 to 205. An Encounter with a Grizzly Bear. It's a chapter from Hunting and Conservation by Charles Bingham Penrose. Yale University Press, 1925. Co-edited by George Bird Grinnell and Charles Sheldon. This is the sixth book in the Acorn series by the Boone and Crockett Club. His story is on pages 66 to 73. By total coincidence, the same book contains a chapter from Winthrop Chandler, the husband of Daisy Chandler and friend of Monsignor Sigourney Fay, whom we met way back in podcast number 19, The Other Side of Paradise. Winty did many articles for hunting and conservation, it appears. Also, a terrific book, Wyoming Range War, The Infamous Invasion of Johnson County. That's by John W. Davis, University of Oklahoma Press, Norman, in 2010. 
for RAF Jr. Richard Alexander Fullerton Penrose Jr., 1863-1931, by Rollin T. Chamberlain, Journal of Geology, Volume 39, Number 8, November through December 1931, pages 756 to 760. Memorial of Richard Allen Fullerton Penrose, Jr., December 17, 1863, July 31, 1931. A tribute to his life and achievements. That is by Valdemar Lindgren, Proceedings of the American Philosophical Society, Volume 72, Number 3, 1933, pages 101 to 114. And the Geological Society of America, Life History of a Learned Society, by Edwin B. Eckel. Chapter 3, Richard Alexander Fullerton Penrose, Jr., The Man and the Benefactor. That's pages 14 to 24. I actually got that from the Geological Society of America. There is not a date on it. As far as Francis, well, there's the blog, Looking to the Sun and Stars, blog by Deanna B. Penrose. I accessed it on 11 March 2022 and several times since then. This is a bizarre blog. She claims to be the daughter of Spencer Penrose, who died in 1937, but then later she says she's the daughter of Philip Penrose, who died in 1901. She said that her uncle Boys was killed by the Vera brothers. Her uncle Francis was a survivor of the RMS Titanic. Her father was a victim of murder. Her grandmother died after falling down a flight of steps. She said that her father was worth $9 billion when he died, most of which was taken by the FBI and the CIA, neither of which existed in 1901. It's a disturbing read, especially since the woman who wrote it shows photos of herself. She looks to be no more than 50 years old, yet she has inserted herself into the history of this family in ways that are almost inextricable. It's it's a fascinating, uh, fascinating thing to read. Anyway, um, until next time, stay safe, stay well.